welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Morning, church. Morning. I am going to try and remember that the, the mic is not here. I'm going to try not to dip down into my low voice as I ponder things. So um, that's my commitment to you. And Tony in the back there is going to give me a sign heavenward if I need to go up in my volume. So I'm, I'm trusting and counting on you, Tony. Let me know if I get too soft. So um, hopefully you'll be able to hear me today. Please, if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Last week we focused our attention on the identity of the serpent and on the problem of evil. I suggested that the scriptures progressively identify the serpent in the garden as the adversary of God's people, Satan. We saw how Satan attempted to usurp God, but ultimately was cast from heaven and down to the earth because of his rebellion. God then permitted Satan to tempt Eve. We know this because of the several places where it is made completely clear that Satan must receive God's permission to approach God's people. Satan is not a rogue free agent. He is not outside God's all-powerful control. Instead, Satan is only able to operate within the limits that God has assigned. This reasoning naturally leads us to the question or the problem of evil in the first place. Because we know that God is good, and there is no evil in Him, nor could He ever do evil. It is contrary to Him, to His nature, to His character. We also know that God created everything, and He created everything in the beginning as good. But then we hear about the, a rebellion in heaven among the angels followed shortly thereafter with the rebellion of man, mankind. And we ask the question, where did this come from if there was only good in the beginning? Did God make a mistake when he was creating this world? Was the angelic rebellion a surprise to him? Did Satan manage to sneak into the garden while God was focused on something else or while he was resting, perhaps? I suggested last week that the scriptures teach the very opposite. I suggested the scriptures teach that God planned to permit evil to be acted out by his creatures because the story of redemption brings God the greatest glory. We looked at these truth claims last week, so I will not rehearse the, the, the scriptural proof here. But please keep this in mind as we study through the temptation of Eve and the fall of mankind into sin. Please keep in mind that before God created the world, he planned to permit rebellion so that he would ultimately be glorified as the Redeemer and Savior of his people to the praise of his glorious grace. That's what we looked at last week in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. But with this overarching uh, truth as our foundation, as this truth as a foundation for us now to build on, 
We'll now focus in on the specifics of how the serpent tempts Eve. Because Satan's tactics in the garden are still relevant for our battle with sin and temptation today. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 together. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to bless the preaching of His Word today. Heavenly Father, I thank You for so many who have come out today. I thank You that um, You have given us Your Word. And that together we can study Your Word and know the truth. Lord, I pray for all those who could not be here today because of illness. I pray especially for the, the little children who are sick today. It seems like there is a virus going around that is just plaguing our children with fevers and I I pray that you will protect each one that you will give mommies and daddies patience and strength and courage to love them as as their children are suffering I pray father for healing and I pray that you would be glorified even in the midst of our trials Lord, I pray also for those who come here today with heavy hearts, who have been beaten down this week by life. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen them and that you would be their hope and that no matter what this life throws at us, that we will find joy in you because you are sufficient. I pray, Father, that we would get a glimpse of this today in your word and that we would leave rejoicing and what you have accomplished for us. In Jesus' name, amen. The first human temptation begins with these words, did God actually say? Right from the very beginning, we can see that the first satanic attack on humanity is directed at the words of God. This is significant because most, if not every, sin is linked to a disregard for the words of God. As you look through the scriptures, it becomes very clear that mankind typically has no problem obeying God and fearing God when God is standing right there in front of them. When God's glory it comes before man, man typically responds with fear awe, and reverence. At that moment, the person witnessing God's glory is fully engaged in doing God's will. The thought of 
rebelling against God, when His glory shines on a person, that's, that seems foreign to the person in that moment. But then the glorious supernatural experience is over, and what the person is left with are the words of God. And that person is faced with a choice. Am I going to obey the words of God as if God in His glory is still standing here next to me, is still present here with me? Am I going to do that or am I going to disregard His word because the experience is over? Think of Noah. God appears to him and says, build an ark because I'm going to cleanse the earth with a worldwide flood. And then the encounter with God is over. At this point, Noah had to make a choice. Obey God's word as if God is standing here next to me, or disregard His word because the supernatural experience is over. Think also of Abram, who experienced God speaking to him, telling him to leave his father's country to sojourn in a country not his own. And then the experience is over, and Abram had to decide whether or not to regard God's word the voice of the Lord, and obey God even though years of divine silence may go by, even though God may not have appeared to him for years at a time. Would he obey God's word alone? Now remember with me the Israelites and their struggle with the words of God. They seemed so eager to to regard the Lord and obey His commands when they were in the midst of great deliverance, or when God revealed even a fraction of His glory to them. But then, when the supernatural experience was over and they were left with only the words of God as their guide, when when that happened, they grumbled and complained against God. And things only got worse when the next generation would come along who did not personally witness God's miracles. And the nation as a whole would sink deeper and deeper into unbelief and disregard for the words of God the further they got from the supernatural experience. This is the condition of mankind. We are bound by the limitations of time and experience. As time goes by, our experiences of the glory of God naturally fade into the background. And we are tempted to disregard His Word because the glory of God feels distant and far away. I believe this to some degree is what happened to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I believe that Adam and Eve lived in the conditions of paradise for many years and that as time went by, the experience of God blessing them, providing for them, and warning them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that that experience started to feel distant in their hearts and minds. It is at this point that Satan enters the scene and asks Eve the question, did God actually say? He focuses his attack on the words of God that have become dull in Eve's mind and heart. How can we know that the words of God have become dull in Eve's mind and heart at this moment? Well, in verses 2 and 3, we'll see that Eve misquotes God, taking away from and adding to God's words. 
But before we get there, let's look at the misleading question that Satan asks. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This question is misleading because it is ingenuine. Satan didn't need to ask what God said. He knew exactly what God had said. Therefore, Satan is pretending ignorance. This question is also misleading because Satan intentionally misquotes God. He pretends to believe that God forbid Adam and Eve from eating any, from eating from any tree in the garden. It's kind of like a, a blank statement. If you can't, I'm going to make all these trees that are beautiful and have all this fruit, but you can't eat from any of them. That's what Satan's implying. This question is also misleading because Satan implies that God is being excessively restrictive. Did God really forbid you from eating from the rest, from the best fruit in all the world? Surely God wouldn't deny you the best things this world has to offer. This is really what he's implying with this question. Ultimately, Satan's question is misleading because it brought doubt upon the goodness of God. Did God really forbid you the best things on earth? Now we can't know for sure what's going on in Eve's mind at this point, but the idea of questioning God's goodness would have been new to her. Also, as she listened to Satan's question, she must have noticed something about his question that didn't sound right because she attempts to correct Satan's understanding of God's word. Eve says in verses 2 and 3, this is her response, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Something strange has happened in Eve's heart and mind since day six of creation. On day six, God gave Adam very clear guidance. Genesis 2, 16-17 says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He says, You may eat of every tree in the garden. But you may not eat of that one tree. If you do, you will surely die. This is a very clear command from God. Now when you first compare Eve's quotation of God with what God actually said, there doesn't seem to be a huge difference. After all, she did get the main thing right. Don't eat of that tree. But when you realize that this is the only prohibitive command of God given to mankind, and that it is the only thing given that could bring death, then you begin to realize that Eve does handle this one command, these words of God. She does handle this rather loosely in this passage. Eve begins, first of all, by diminishing God's generosity toward mankind. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees. But God had given them permission to surely eat, or could also be stated to freely eat of every tree in the garden. This may seem minor to us, but keep in mind that this was essential to Adam and Eve's history up to this point. If there was going to be anything written on tablets of stone, it would have been this command 
from God to mankind. So we at least get a hint at Eve's attitude toward the goodness of God at this point. She isn't jumping at the opportunity to praise the goodness of God towards her and Adam. Next, Eve makes the most blatant mistake. She adds to the words of God. She adds the phrase, Neither shall you touch it. This addition to God's word had to come from somewhere. It's totally possible that Adam passed on God's command to Eve and hoping to be extra careful to obey God, they may have both decided not to touch the fruit of that tree. Let's just not touch it. But here we see that in Eve's mind, with the passing of time, God is the one who is now attributed with commanding that they could not even touch that tree. Don't even touch it. Eve's response to Satan quickly unravels as she finishes with the phrase, lest you die, these are her words, This phrase in the Hebrew implies the possibility of death, lest you die. In the Hebrew, it's the possibility of dying, but not the certainty of death as God originally warned. God had said, if you eat, you shall surely die. With this final phrase, Eve expresses a growing doubt in her own mind and heart as to whether or not death would truly come from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now I realize the three things I've pointed out in Eve's response may seem minor. Typically the only error that stands out to the reader is Eve's addition of do not touch the fruit of that tree. And I think it would make sense to overlook her paraphrase of God's word for the most part if her words were not immediately followed by full-blown rebellion only a few moments later. In the context of rebellion moments later, Eve's response to Satan reveals a mind and a heart that are becoming dulled to the goodness of God. In her response, she has diminished the goodness of God, added severity to God's one prohibition, and doubted the certainty of the penalty for rebellion. Temptation rarely takes hold of a Christian's mind and heart, like a bull in a china shop just crashing its way through the front door, making its presence known, and overpowering you through brute strength. The seeds of temptation are typically sown in the heart of a Christian through little lies about God in the world as He created it. For example, many Christians have excused all kinds of behavior through the little lie that God wants me to be happy, right? Doesn't God want me to be happy? You can see how this seemingly innocent statement is loaded with all kinds of problems, especially depending on the circumstances that surround that statement. I would argue that yes, God does want to bring His people into perfect, eternal happiness. That's why it is so important to love Him and obey Him, because He is the fountain of all joy and contentment. So yes, God does desire that for His people. But as of yet, I've never heard anyone throw out the God wants me to be happy phrase 
in connection with their desire to deny the flesh and become more like Christ. It's just typically not something we throw out when that is our heart's content. It's not. Instead, these little lies about God and the world as He created it, these are used as cloaks to obscure the severity of rebellion and hide the future judgment of sin and rebellion. The seeds of temptation are typically small, under the radar, and subtle. Thoughts like, I deserve, and fill in the blank, whatever you want to fill it in with. I deserve. Or thoughts like, just this once, I'm only human, or God will understand, or I'm not hurting anyone. Temptation usually begins with subtle lies, but as these lies take hold of the heart, it opens the door for bold denials of truth. In Genesis 3, Satan has attacked, has asked, sorry, has asked a misleading question, and Eve has given a poor response, which now opens the door wide open for Satan's bold denial of the words of God. Satan sees the weakness in Eve's response and jumps at the opportunity to increase her doubt about God and His words. Satan confidently responds, You will not surely die. In the Hebrew, it's actually the first word in that sentence is not. You will surely die. So it's just a direct denial of what God has said. It's blatant. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The boldness of Satan's denial of God's word surprises us. It's like we're watching a movie where the bad guy overplays his hand, giving away his true purpose, his true intent, and we're sitting there thinking, she's not really going to fall for this, is she? It's easy to sit back and judge others as they fall into temptation. But we all know from experience that temptation to sin doesn't seem so ridiculous when we're in the midst of it ourselves. There is a blinding effect in our reason and intellect when the ungodly desires of our heart are offered to us on a silver platter. We become laser-focused on the object of our desire and deaf to the voices of reason around us, even sometimes becoming deaf to the very words of God. This is what happened to Eve. And in his cunning, Satan inflames Eve's desire by increasing her doubts speaking directly to the three mistakes Eve made in her poor response. And he addresses them now in reverse order. Satan points out, first, um, we see that Eve doubted the certainty of the penalty of sin. That's the last thing she said. So Satan goes and he assures her that she would not die. Eve added severity to God's one prohibition. Satan affirmed that God is being extremely severe because he's denying Eve something that couldn't possibly hurt you and is in fact the best of all. Last, Eve diminished the goodness of God. Satan attacks God's goodness 
by stating that God is intentionally keeping back the best thing from her. The thing that will make her like God Himself. The thing that will make her happier than God's way could possibly ever make her. That is what Satan is claiming here. This is the last time we hear Satan speak in the garden. It is possible that Satan leaves Eve at this point to wrestle with her doubts. But, but he fully knows, he leaves her fully knowing that temptation had begun its awful work in her heart. Satan's lies about God had found fertile soil in Eve's heart. She liked what she heard from Satan. She liked the idea of being happier. Surely one prohibition, one law was one law too many. Surely what's best for me is to be happy and free. It's at this point that Eve's heart begins filling up with evil desire, which is lust. Verse 6 tells us exactly what is going on in Eve's heart. Verse 6 says, Eve saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. These three desires are summarized this way in 1 John 2. John warns the church, do not love the world. He's talking about the the things opposed to God in this world. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. All these are not from the Father, but they are from the world. And the world is passing away, verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Genesis 3 lists three desires that Eve saw, and 1 John 2 lists three desires as well. First, Eve saw that the food that the, the fruit was good for food. John calls this the desires of the flesh, what the body craves. Eve saw that the fruit was a delight to the eyes. John calls this the desires of the eyes, what the eyes long to be fed by. They want to be fed by sight. Third, Eve saw that the fruit was desired to make one wise, would make her like God, is what, what Satan said. John calls this the pride of life. Or it could also be said the desire to exalt yourself against God, the pride of life. John summarizes all evil desire this way. And all three of these desires were present in the garden um, as Eve stood before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve didn't know it yet, but she had been deceived, and now, because of her doubt, she was being filled by three powerful evil desires which lured and enticed her to di- disobey the Creator God. The rest of the account is a rapid succession of statements that depict the disobedience and shame of Adam and Eve. Let's begin reading in verse 6 for context. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, when she saw that, she took of its fruit and ate. 
and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Eve doubted the goodness of God, and her doubt opened the door for evil desires to come flooding in, which she then acted upon, eating the fruit which she held, which she thought held the key to divine happiness, to divine joy, to a better life. But she doesn't stop there. She also, in, in the deception of her heart, as she was deceived, she also takes the fruit to the one human person she is supposed to love most and convinces him, Adam, to also eat the fruit. The fruit that will make us happier than God's way could ever possibly make us. Now, I should pause and address a very obvious question that seems to always come up. The question of, where was Adam this entire time? He just comes in and just makes it worse. That's, that's really all he brought to this story, it seems like. Well, the scripture really doesn't tell us a whole lot. Verse, t- verse 6 tells us that Eve gave some of the fruit to her husband who was with her. And because of this phrase, some speculate that Adam was standing next to Eve during the entire temptation. I mean, this is possible. That he was just standing there kind of watching this whole thing go down. But this could also just be a way of generally saying that her husband dwelt in the garden with her and that she went and found him in the garden. Also in Genesis 3 verse 12, Adam is defending his actions to God and in his response he blames his wife but doesn't say anything about the serpent. So In his defense of himself, he never says, well, Satan deceived me, the serpent deceived me. He never says that. Then in Genesis 3, verse 17, God says that Adam listened to the voice of his wife. But God makes no reference to Adam listening to the serpent, which might lead us to believe that Adam didn't hear the deceptive words of the serpent. And then again in 1 Timothy 2, verse 13, we find out, that Eve was deceived by the serpent, but that Adam was not deceived. All these passages together lead me to believe that Adam was not present during Eve's temptation. But for reasons we are not given and cannot fully explain, when Eve arrived with the fruit from the tree and gave it to Adam, Adam was ready and willing to eat. Though Adam was the king of all the earth, he was not satisfied with being a servant of God any longer and was ready for an upgrade. He was ready to be something that God did not intend for him. At this point, the eyes of both Adam and Eve were open and they knew that they were naked. Adam and Eve desired the wisdom and freedom that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil supposedly would provide them, hoping to be like God. But when their eyes were opened, they were shocked to find out that they did not know good and evil like God does. One theologian used cancer as a way to illustrate the difference. God has knowledge of evil like an oncologist. Like a cancer surgeon knows cancer. That's how God knows evil. But Adam and Eve 
knew evil at this point. Like cancer, patients know cancer. Like those who are infected by the disease. God is the physician able to cure evil. Adam and Eve became his first patients. And as their eyes are opened, they are filled with the shame of their nakedness, which becomes a sign of their sin guilt before God. Adam and Eve then attempt to cover their nakedness with leaves in order to hide their shame, which becomes a picture of how mankind will attempt to cover their sin through their own works, their own good deeds, in order to cover their guilt before a holy God. We don't have time this morning to really dig deep into this, so we will look at this again in in weeks to come. But for now, this is where temptation has led humanity's parents into disobedience, shame, and certain death. James 1 verses 14 through 15 warns the church of getting into bed with their own desires like Adam and Eve did. James says this to the church, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. So you have gone into bed with your own desire, and what comes out of that is the birth of sin. He goes on to say in verse 15, And then sin when it is fully grown, brings forth or gives birth to death. Evil desire, when we give into it, brings forth, gives birth to sin. And then if we allow those sins to fully mature, to take hold of our heart and lives, and we feed it, and we love it, and we mature our sin, James says, that the outcome of that is death. And he's not just talking about physical death. He is talking about eternal death and separation from God. These are the tactics and the pattern of temptation that we see all the way back in the garden and that have continued to play themselves out all the way up until this day. Every human being has experienced temptation and given in to temptation, choosing to live in sin for at least a season. All have done this, but with one exception, the God-man, Jesus. For roughly 6,000 years, mankind has been defeated by temptation Maybe not every time, maybe with increasing success at walking with God, but always with fault and guilt and the accompanying shame, just like what Adam and Eve felt. Mankind cannot defeat temptation or cover their sin guilt on their own. They cannot do this any more than Adam and Eve could adequately cover their nakedness before God trying to cover themselves with leaves. Mankind desperately needs God to provide the cure for the disease in our heart. Mankind desperately needs God to defeat temptation on our behalf. 
which is why, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Galatians 4, 4. And part of God's redemption of his people is Jesus' defeat of the temptation to sin. We read of this in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. This is one example and maybe the most prominent one in the scriptures of how Satan defeated temptation on behalf of his people. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11 says this. This is immediately following his baptism by John the Baptist. And it says in verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after uh, fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. It's a bit of an understatement, it feels like. 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. He ate no food. And the tempter came and said to him, so this is the tempter who is Satan. Satan comes to him and says, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. This sounds a little familiar. It sounds a little familiar to what happened in the garden. It has to do with food. It has to do with eating something. But at first we might think to ourselves, why would Jesus have a problem with doing, do having a miracle, uh, a working a miracle and creating bread from, sto- uh, from stones? Why would this be a problem? Well, we just saw that Jesus was led up by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit had led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This was God's will, that he fast and that he be tempted in his fasting, in his moment of trial. This is God's will for Jesus. And so for Jesus to perform a miracle and turn stones into bread, for him to do this would be rebellion against the will of God for him. So Jesus responds to Satan, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Verse 5, Then the devil took him. They're going to escalate the temptation. Then the devil took him to the holy city. Jerusalem is what he's talking about. And set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Again, Satan is tempting Jesus to do something that we're kind of like, why would this be be a problem for Jesus to jump off the temple and for God to perform a miracle and catch Him? And for Him to be revealed to be the Messiah. Why would it be a problem for those in Jerusalem to see this? Well, again, God had not commanded or led Jesus to do this. And it was clearly not part of God's will for Jesus to jump off the temple, be shown to be the Messiah in a very public place, in the holy city, right there by the temple, And then for the people to see him and say, that's the Messiah, grab him, and then go crown him as king of the Jews. That was not God's intent or his will for Jesus here during this temptation. We also see that Satan is very comfortable to use the words of God. 
And he uses them in such a way to twist them and try to deceive Jesus. And he is still doing that today. That's why we see so many false pagan ideas about Christianity, how Satan is twisting even the words of God to support a message that is not true. Heresies that lead the people of God astray. So here Jesus knows this is not the will of God. And Jesus says to Satan, again it is written, this is verse 7, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He's saying that to jump off of the, of the temple and to test, to see, is God going to catch me? Is He going to fulfill His promise? This would be a sin. It would be rebellion against God and would be an artificial way for, for Jesus to exalt Himself in the eyes of people. Verse 8, the, we again, the temptation escalates. Verse 8, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Verse 11, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Again, the devil tempts him, and this time it's the temptation of what he showed Jesus before his eyes. He showed him the possibility of reigning over the earth without the cross, without the necessity for any more suffering, any more pain, and without the necessity for Jesus to die on the cross and bear the weight of sinful man's wrath that God has, has stored up for man's sin, it was going to be poured out on Jesus on the cross. And Satan is giving him another option. This is the temptation that Jesus, here the third temptation that Jesus faces. And Jesus again and Jesus again responds with the word. And it's almost like he is so offended by the idea of, of worshiping Satan that he says, be gone and commands him to leave. Saying, only God shall you worship. Only the Lord God shall you worship and whom only shall you serve. Here we've seen Jesus walk through three temptations. And it, it's not too hard to see how these fit into the desire of the flesh. Talking about his desire to feed his hunger. Then there is the desire, the second temptation really aligns with the pride of life. This idea of exalting yourself against God. Because if Jesus had thrown himself off the temple and had gone against the will of God, he would have exalted himself before man. But he would have gone against the will of God by doing so. So he was, he was facing the pride of life. The third temptation, really is the one he's facing, is the desire of the eyes. Satan laid out in front of his eyes all the kingdoms of this world with their wealth and their power. And he's saying, you can look at this dominion. Look at it. Desire it. I will give this to you. 
And as we know, Jesus responded with the word and in faith obeyed the Lord. In obedience, obeyed God. Three times Satan tempted Jesus and three times Jesus responded with scriptures that praise God as worthy of devotion, worthy of serving, worthy of worshiping. Can I suggest to you that that is the way that we can face the tactics of the devil in temptation? It's really hard for us to sin against God, to profane His name, to trample through the filth of this world, while at the same time proclaiming from our hearts the glory, the worthiness of God. If this is truly buried deep in our hearts and on the, the, the edge of our tongues that we want to, we long to, and we fill our hearts with the praise of a holy and good, righteous God, if this is the condition of our hearts because we long for Him, because we search for Him in the Word, because we pray to Him from a sincere heart of devotion, because we are serving Him with our activity, if this is the way we are living our lives, then we will find that temptation is gradually losing its hold on us. Not only that, but Christ has also given us all the spiritual weapons for warfare to defeat the temptation of the devil, not on our own, but through the spirit that he has placed in us. He has made us into a new creation. God says that He's going to write His law upon our heart and we have been given the Spirit and the Word so that we can fight against the temptations of the devil. Ultimately, Jesus has defeated temptation for His people. He has defeated temptation and He has given us now every ability to continue to walk in the victory that he has won and he says that all those who love him and live for him that when they stand before god on the day of judgment god will declare innocent free from guilt free from shame as if you had never once fallen into temptation he promises that he says that when the father will look on us he will declare us innocent and righteous as if we had lived the life that jesus lived because jesus has imparted to all those who love him and live for him jesus has imparted his righteousness on us so may we go out of here today rejoicing in the victory that Christ has won and determined to flee and to fight from the temptation to sin, the temptation to rebel against our God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You how it has recorded for us both the failures of mankind and the glorious grace of God towards His people. Lord, I pray that 
that my feeble attempts to explain and express the words of God, that the Spirit would take that and would take the Word and that you would fill your people with joy so abundant that we would despise evil, that we would grow in loving the things you love and hating the things you hate. Would you do that for us today? Would you give us a heart that loves you and that in lives where we live for you, for your glory and ultimately for our happiness and for the greatest joy we could possibly imagine? We know that that is only found in you. Would you help us, Lord? Would you forgive our unbelief? And would you strengthen us? Amen. Amen.